0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Your level of success has everything to do with your level of personal development that you cannot do because it has to do with capacity. You know, when we want more success in business, the true route to get that is not necessarily more effort. It's not necessarily putting in more hours. What it needs to start with before you take those actions, it needs to start with first increasing your capacity, your capacity to believe in yourself, your capacity to believe what you're capable of, your capacity to increase your level of thinking bigger by getting things out of your mindset, the capacity of stepping into what you really deserve, which is a tough one for most people, Right? Because we've put a limit on what we think we deserve.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Jeffrey, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, Cerny, I'm so excited to be back. It's been three years, so I'm excited to be here with you. Wow, I can't believe three years has gone by, but uh, I think that anytime we have somebody back more than once, it says a whole hell of a lot about their first appearance on the show. Uh, You have a new book out uh the self-employed life which we will talk about but as you know from having been a previous guest we're definitely not going to start there so mm-hmm. uh I want to start by asking you what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did those end up impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life
1: well i i, w- I was raised in catholicism um was essentially kicked out of the church <laughs> by uh, how, however old somebody is when they make their confirmation um and literally asked to leave, like the priest called my parents and said, either get this kid under control or, you know, he's not welcome to the church. And I asked too many questions, apparently, I, I for, for this church in a small town. Um, I, I just asked way too many questions. I wanted a deeper understanding. I didn't just take what they were preaching verbatim. And uh, it wasn't liked, it wasn't enjoyed. And so what that taught me is, I, I think really more than anything, certainly what it taught me is just open-mindedness because I don't harbor any ill feelings about Catholicism. And there's a certain amount of nostalgia to it. My grandmother, was, who I was super close to growing up, um, was really devoted to to her Catholic church. And so to me, I can walk into St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City and have a rush of sentimental feelings about my grandmother and about that upbringing, but it doesn't guide me in any way, shape, or form as to my own values today. Mm. Um, But I do think it it shaped a certain amount of acceptance of all religions because I, I think at the end of the day, all paths that we follow have some sentimental element to it. And what we take from the lessons of that is our choice. And I choose to, I'm more aligned with the philosophies of Buddhism and have probably spent well, not probably, I've definitely spent far more of my life looking at those philosophies. Um, but honestly, one of my favorite books is a book called, uh, it's uh, Jesus and Buddha. And it's it was written by a a professor of Catholicism that decided to make this side-by-side comparison between the writings of Jesus and the writings of Buddha. And it's one of my favorite books because it's just so blatantly obvious how much is similar. Mm. And um, so- that's, that to me, I think, is probably the biggest pay- takeaway is just that it all works. It's a personal journey. Yeah.
2: Why do you think that more people don't question what they're being told verbatim? I don't, now I don't think this applies just to religion. You see it with, you know, thought leaders and personal development gurus and influencers where people take their word as gospel instead of guidance. And mm-hmm. I've always wondered, like, why is that? Why do you think people don't have the
1: courage to challenge authority? You know, in this particular case with the church, what surprises me is that I did because I was a horribly shy kid and just not gutsy enough. So there was, to me, there had to be something so so deep in conflict that I just couldn't accept it. So to me, the answer to the question you're asking is that I think people are not in touch. They're not relying on what they must feel in their gut. Like they're not paying attention to the conflict and the disagreement. And at the end of the day, I think that's guided me a lot through business as well because I just, you know, I'm always very open to learning from avenues around me. I will pay attention to what big businesses are doing and glean ideas. But at the end of the day, I lean into what feels right. Right. So I think a lot of times, because I find that when I when I started out as speaking, I would come off stages all the time and people would come up to me and and thank me. They'd say, you know, thank you for giving me permission. And they always use the word permission. And for the longest time, I just nodded my head accepting, but I didn't understand the feedback and still until I started asking for more clarification about what they felt they got. And they said, I felt like you gave me permission to do in business, to be in business in a way that always felt natural to me anyway. I just didn't feel like I could do it that way. Hmm. So I think the reason people follow rote advice is they just don't pay attention to the conflict they're feeling on the inside. And for me, as that young kid, I think the conflict that I was feeling about what they were saying to me and what made sense just was so deep that I was willing to speak up despite the fact that I was the kid that, you know, in Sunday school that you wouldn't have known was there or confirmation classes. Like I was the one hiding in the back of the room, uh, very uncomfortable really unlikely likely that i would speak up but i think i did because it just the the feeling of the conflict was too great for me
2: hmm. what in particular led to that feeling uh, of conflict when you were hearing what you were being
1: told and, and how did your parents react you know surprising how my parents react and i really was surprised um i think they saw i don't know. I. I I have to believe, and my mom is still very devoted to her to her faith. Uh, I have to believe they saw some truth in what I was saying. There was something going on. I felt kind of behind the scenes that they had a, they they believed me because they accepted it. They basically just let me make the decision: did I want to, you know, follow that path of the church or not? And I said no, and they ex- completely accepted it. And that was kind of unlike my parents. Uh, so the i I think they must have seen something that. Maybe I, maybe I even gained their admiration for having the guts to, to see maybe what they weren't willing to see. Um, so yeah. I was upset. What was the first part of that question? I guess so focused <laughs> on my parents' response. Yeah,
2: no, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, what is it that, that prompted that conflict for you?
1: I, you know, <sighs> I don't, I don't know if I recall entirely. It just was this blanket belief, like, just believe this. And I think that was it. It was just this, just believe this, don't ask questions. And whether it was faith or, you know, where, how we were going to end up, they we were going to end up in heaven, I don't, I don't know what it, it was. I just remember, and I can still kind of recall that feeling of it just being this blanket statement. Just believe it. It's written. It's it's in word, right? It's it's in a written word, and and that's not to be challenged. And I don't believe that even in the written word, that the creator of those words didn't intend for it to be challenged. It's just a thought, and it's just a it's a thought on paper. Um, so I, I think for me, it was just this this the blanketness of it. To this day, I have a problem with stuff like that. I try not to myself. I try not to speak in absolutes. And when you, you know, like using words like, well, people never, or you should, you know, when you speak in absolutes, you're ruling out the possibility of exploration. Mm,
2: Wow. So one of the things you talk about later in the book, which I I actually didn't know until I read this book was coming out of the closet. And I, I wonder, what role that played in your conflict with, uh, the church. And also what is that experience like telling a parent? Cause I've, I've asked a lot of people this question and I know that for me, that would be such a strange, particularly if Indian parents, I can't imagine mm-hmm. what that conversation would go like. And of course I have no context for that because I'm not,
1: you know, somebody who's come out of a closet. Yeah. So, and I didn't come out till 44, right? Okay. So, um, gosh, sorry. This is a, this is a, this is a, Big one, but I'll, I'll share every bit of it because I, I don't <laughs> mind. Well, because you know it's uh, the, the the internal conflict of it all, if you will. To me, is that I do believe that you know we're 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 born. You know, as Lady Gaga says, we're born that way. I mean, I do believe that to be true. But that introduces the thought. Well, then were you lying? And I was married for nineteen years. I got married at twenty years old. I was married for nineteen years. Had three kids. Uh, have three kids and you know my youngest during the the stickiness of the divorce she she accused me of lying you know during the marriage she was only 5 years old i mean she but that's how she was processing it and that was the hardest thing ever for me to hear from my child you know questioning whether i was a liar whether i was uh, lying during the years of marriage and it never i never felt like i was lying and and what i have come to understand about the process of coming out is that you truly do have to come out to yourself first. I do believe I was always gay. Looking back, could I have, I mean, I, I will tell you, anytime there was a, a man and woman or a boy and girl in high school walking down the hallway, I was always checking out the guy, right? But here's the thing. In the way my brain was processing the checking out is I truly did not understand men. I had little to no relationship with my father. I have two older brothers that were just these mysterious enigmas. Like they just, you know, let me put it this way. When I, when I came out to myself and walked into my therapist's office at the age of 44 years old and told my therapist with absolute confirmation, I'm gay, right? She said, not surprised. And I said, the problem is I hate men. She goes, I know that that's going to be a problem. (laughs) Right. It's both funny, but also complicated because I, I had not had a very positive image of men in my life. So to me, I did look at men, but I was trying so hard to figure them out. I don't think I collapsed it into a sexual attraction. It just was like, what makes men to, and Hey, I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, I still, I, I still somewhat jokingly say to my female friends, I'm like, I don't know how the human race has continued. I said, because I don't get men. Like I, I you know, it's uh, it's still challenging for me. So mm-hmm. yes, I think we're born gay. And I think that there's a lot of information we gather as a kid. Um, you know, I, I never, I did not, I never had a thought that I could have been gay or that I should come out until sometime around the age of, you know, 33, 34 at which point I granted myself permission to ask myself the question. And when I did, it was obvious to me. And then I came out. As the the, the coming out process telling your parents, my my father passed away when I was 20. He was 52. And um, who knows? I mean, I wonder whether I would have ever come out if he was still living. I don't know, Uh, because he was uh, that powerful of a figure. I'm not sure that I would have. But when I came out to my mom, it was a combination of being quite funny, but also a little as, a little hurtful. And we've definitely recovered from that. But when I first came out, and I talk about this in my TEDx talk, because literally when I said to her, I said, you know, and I was always told to be very definite. So I said, mom, I'm gay. And it was silence for a second. And this is on the phone. I didn't have the guts to do it in person. It was over the phone. And she said to me, is it because you moved to New York City? <laughs> 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 and, you know, but the, the, point, the funny part about it is is she actually wasn't wrong. You know, and that's really what the basis of my TEDx talk is, is that often people can see more in us than we can see in ourselves. And the reality is, since I had moved to New York City, a lot of people had questioned my proclaimed straightness. A lot of people were asking me, are you maybe metrosexual? Like, are you sure you're straight? I was getting a lot of that. And it did introduce the questioning. And that's, you know, think about how often people do come out in our lives and we're not at all surprised. Or people Mm -hmm. say, well, I knew that. I was just waiting for you to discover it. So she wasn't entirely wrong, but that was quickly followed by, I love you for who you are, but let's not tell anybody. I'm like, Mm -hmm. but mom, that's not loving me for who I am. So we had our times to work through, um, and she did. And she she doesn't even give it a second thought now.
3: Ready to pop the question?
2: Um wow. So I
0: have one follow up question to this. How does this
2: end up changing the relationships in your life, particularly with your kids, your ex-wife? I mean, I know this is not the common story of coming out when you're a teenager and you know you did it so much later in life,
1: which is really different than a lot of the people that I've talked to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, and mind you, and this is because uh, I respect you so much. I don't share this a lot only because I just don't want to, conf- don't want to introduce more confusion, but I sure. was married a second time when I came out. So I had been married, as I said, for 19 years, divorced for reasons having nothing to do with this, uh, was, was uh, divorced for five years, and in that time, dated women, and got married a second time, and it was a year into that second marriage that I came out. So there was impact on a lot of people. As to the response of it, um, first of all, I think I give full credit to my second wife for creating an atmosphere of safety that even enabled me to consider being truth to, true to myself. She also was just the perfect human for me. You know, I mean, we were so compatible. I, The respect I had for her is immeasurable. I did love her, and there was something missing. And that's began, that was a big part of the questioning. I'm like, I literally found the soul meat of my dreams, and I knew that, and there was something missing. And what I realized was missing was I've I kind of Thought about it as passion. That we don't talk about what passion really is enough, because what I felt was missing was was the passion to fight for success in the relationship. And it wasn't just it wasn't just a sexual passion. It was, you know, as marriages do and relationships do, we would hit bumps, and I just didn't have an innate passion to save what I knew was the perfect relationship. And that's what got me questioning. It's like, what is missing here? I should be fighting for this. I want this. I love this person. She's fantastic. Um, When I came out to her, it was, she actually congratulated me. She accepted it. Went on with her life. We remained friends. My kids who were, let me see, they were at the time five, mm, let me see, they were five, eight and 10. And, um, they couldn't care less. Literally, I remember the exact phrase. I sat all three of them down around the dining room table um, to tell them. And one by one, my son my son said, I don't want to know what's going on in your bedroom now any more than when you were married to my mother. <laughs> <laughs> my, my oldest daughter, like there's like a line by age. My next child, my older daughter, she said, great, now we can go shopping. Like we've, <laughs> always, gone, we've always gone shopping. And then my youngest said, I don't care, you're still my dad. And then collectively, they were like, can we go for ice cream? Because I had promised them ice cream. And that was it. That was it. It was the, uh, you know, and there has never been, I mean, all three of the kids are just incredibly accepting. They've seen me go in and out of a couple of relationships. It's taken me, I'm in a healthy relationship now, but it took me several (laughs) to get my act together because I really had, I've had a lot of internal conflict in my life around men. So it was very hard for me to figure out how to relate to them.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. Well, you know, I, I think
2: we all have some version of something like this in our lives. Uh, you know, it may not necessarily coming out as gay, but something that we're, we're denying some truth about our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we stop denying that truth? I mean, because I think that's like a, a perfect segue into this whole idea of wanting to be self-employed. But so often I, I think people are denying some truth that has just been eating at them inside. Wow. Wow.
1: Boy, if I knew the answer to that, I mean, couldn't I save humanity? I mean, uh, that, all I can do is explore the question because there's no, there's no, again, there's no absolute answer to that. Um, I do believe, I mean, my TEDx talk starts with walking out on stage and saying, we all have classes to come out of. I don't tie it into my own coming out story till much later on in the talk. But the reality is I truly believe we all have classes to come out of. There are all ways, we all have ways in which we are, keeping the best of ourselves hidden, that there's something we're hiding. And, and what I propose as the solution to that is to listen to the feedback around us that I truly believe often people see more in us than we see in ourselves. Um, I think it's very hard for us necessarily to see what we're hiding. I think we have an inkling. it's not It hasn't been awoken, but I think if we start listening to what other people see in us, which is a sort of in an odd way. It's sort of what the experience I was having when I moved to New York City. And I got curious about the, the whole idea that my TEDx talk when I was watching um, the Tony Awards. And now I've watched a lot of award shows. And I don't actually watch a lot of TV, but I love award shows because I like to see people get appreciated for their work. And I was watching the Tony Awards and it struck me how often people express their gratitude for their success to other people. They thank their peers. They thank their coaches. They thank their high school teacher. And I realized how, how often people people that have achieved big goals in their lives reflect back on people that saw something more in them than they saw in themselves at some time in their life. And that actually began the process of of what became my TEDx talk, of just thinking about how it's called the validation paradox because i think there's a way in which we go through our lives trying to validate ourselves uh we're trying to find ourselves but the paradox of that is, is i actually think often other people see more in us than we see in ourselves so as far as what how how does one go about revealing that uh, you know uh, chances are there's some inkling like what some there's some way in your life that you know that you could be more that you could be bigger you could be happier there's a, there's an inkling which it's kind of dormant. And I think the way we wake up that dormant seed is by paying attention to people's other, other people's reflections of us to allow us to step into the questioning. Mm.
2: Well, I, I think that makes a, a perfect segue to actually getting into the concepts in the book. So, you know, as any author is asked when they have
1: to write a book proposal, why this book? Why now? So the crazy thing is, actually, I I avoided the entire process of of writing a book proposal. I got a publisher on an email um, because, and I believe I got that. One is I had somewhat of a relationship with the publisher because I've interviewed a lot of their authors on my podcast. Um, But I also believe my clarity and commitment to this topic was so clear. I truly believe they saw it. Publishers saw it. Um, This actually wasn't the book I set out to, to write, but at the end of 2019, really the fall of 2019, but I actively started writing towards the end of um, 2019. I was actively writing a book that was sort of a, a an iteration of my previous book, Lingo. And it was kind of a deeper dive into things I had learned since the book had been out there. And quite honestly, it was suggested to me to take that route because it probably would sell a lot of books. Um, if I looked at the the path of other authors where they introduced a concept book. And then after the concept book, they took a deeper dive into something specific of that concept. That follow-up book often did really well. And it actually would be an easy book to write. So I started writing that book feeling some, I don't know, I just felt like I wasn't really being myself. I felt because I am a heady guy. I, I am a deep thinker. And I felt like this was kind of a very light version of myself, but hey, it would sell a lot of books. And I was very interested in that. So I was going down that path, but then at the same time, I was asked to speak at a conference that I've spoken at many times. It's a big conference. And uh, I typically deliver a lot of business content at this conference. And I just didn't know what else to deliver business-wise. So I went out on a limb, created a talk called Life is an Everything Bagel. And it was an exploration of, you know, how we go through our lives choosing between things, but it's not, it's not until we stop choosing between things that we actually can choose everything. And I even did some background study on the history of the everything bagel and, uh, you know, how that came about and kind of compare that to life. And it was a very, very coachy talk. I have over a thousand hours of training as a coach, but I've always felt like I had to deliver such tangible business lessons to people that I've, I've, I have almost I almost shoved the coach and me back in the closet. It's always been there, and i that's what I do for a living. I mean, my primary income is as a coach. But when it came to how I needed to deliver as a speaker, I always kept that a little quiet and just delivered amazing value. But this talk, I went for it. And it wasn't my best talk. I, I think some things resonated really well with the audience. Some things didn't. Uh, afterwards, the feedback was not my best feedback. But I knew I'd broken through something that I needed to do for myself. And I literally, I left that conference and from the plane, texted my editor and said, I'm writing the wrong book. I'm going to drop it. So I did. I dropped that book with a little quiet time, felt like I just had this urge to write this book for self-employed people. And it, 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 in the end, it's the thing that made the most sense. I've I've literally never had a traditional job. I've never received a paycheck. And this seemed like the most obvious thing after 36 years of being in business since the age of 20, and yet my self-employment journey began as a teenager. You know, after my entire life, of course this made sense. And this was in January of 2020. Well, by March 2020, we know what broke loose. And it was at that point that my commitment to this audience really ramped up because I was... uh, fearful of what was going to happen to small businesses, uh, even more fearful that self-employed businesses would be overlooked by our government because they always have been. Uh, and, you know, I, I, heard, I heard grumblings of a CARES Act. I have a lot of connections in politics, so I actually was given the 800-page document to, to look through, and uh, much to my surprise, it was the first time in U.S. history that self-employed business owners were called out in a piece of legislation that would receive financial help through the PPP loans. And that, that to me was like a crack in a window. I was like, holy crap, the government for the first time in history is acknowledging that self-employed business owners matter to the economy because there's no other reason they would give the help. This wasn't coming from a place of kindness and you know, but without that help, Srini, you know, we would have ended up with a $600 stimulus checks or most people would have, right? A yeah. $600 stimulus check. Like like we can live our, we can run our lives and our businesses on a stimulus check. But that's what would have happened in the past because in the past, all the, the help went to banks, big corporations, and at best, small businesses. But the problem is, you can have up to 500 employees as a small business. And it lo- has always left out the person who's brave enough to go out on a limb and and support themselves, not live on government aid, but support themselves by building their own business. The bravest thing I think you can do, and yet always the first one's left out of help when it was needed. And uh, so to me, just the idea was there, the window is cracked open. I'm like, I am never letting that door close again. I am stepping forward as not just you know, I, I said to my publisher, "I'm looking to be an advocate. This is I'm not just looking to be an author of a book. I'm looking to be an advocate for this audience." Um, so I sent an email to the publisher and said, "Here's my concept." And they did a quick they did a quick search on Amazon and wrote back to me and said, "Well, we just searched in Amazon, and the top ten books about self employment in Amazon are about taxes." Wow, and, and they are. And I did the same research. There was absolutely nothing. That had anything to do with what self-employed people know actually matters, how we live, what, what mindsets we need, the strategies we need. And, and so my, my commitment to this, this work of art just ramped up and, uh, yeah. and there it is. Well, Well, let's get
2: into the book. You know, one of the things you just said is that you've never received a paycheck in your life. And you open the book by saying the great paradox or myth lie conflict or whatever you want to call it about self-employment is that we're going to c- gain control of our destiny, but we're entering into completely uncontrollable circumstances. I think that's enough to make a lot of people lose their damn minds um, <laughs> and not do it in the first place. So how do you yeah. navigate that You know, idea of uncontrollable
1: circumstances without losing your mind? Yeah. And, and that comes from asking countless number of self-employed people and everybody has the same answer. Like, why'd you go in business for yourself? Oh, I wanted to control my destiny. And I'm like, how's that going for you? <laughs> and everybody yeah. laughs like, it, you know, it's not, and there's like this myth and it, it is an interesting paradox because there's a way in which, you know, we go into business for ourselves, we wanted to control our destiny. This, we're not stupid. There's a, there's a way in which we know in our minds that, you know, it's not easy. We know that life is not controllable. We do it anyway, thankfully. But then we get in there and we're like, holy crap, this is this is more unknown circumstances than I could have imagined. I mean, a year and a half ago, who would have known a pandemic was a factor we needed to consider in business? You know, we've always thought, okay, the economy can go up and down, market trends change. Somehow we naively think that we're that's never going to happen during our time in business, right? So, we know some outside circumstances. The, two, the things that we don't ex- expect, you know, certainly <laughs> acts of terrorism, um, you know, now pandemics, like there are things that were not on our radar before that are now. But the other thing I think that we just cannot be sufficiently prepared for is, is the interconnection between our personal lives and experience and our business. It is just the whole idea that, it, you know, business is business, don't take it personal does not apply when you're self-employed. And and I don't think we can prepare ourselves for the integration of our emotions into the business, as well as what I think is even more significant, the interconnectedness between our personal development and our business. I fundamentally have come to believe that your level of success has everything to do with your level of personal development, that you cannot, because it has to do with capacity. You know, when we want more success in business, the true route to get that is not necessarily more effort. It's not necessarily putting in more hours. What it needs to start with before you take those actions, it needs to start with first increasing your capacity, your capacity to believe in yourself, your capacity to believe what you're capable of, your capacity to increase your level of thinking bigger by getting things out of your mindset the capacity of stepping into what you really deserve which is a tough one for most people right because we've put a limit on what we think we deserve you have to you have to expand that in order to actually have a place for the effort that you're going to do to fit in so i think that's you know we just can't you think we think we're prepared but we we can't and what i propose as the solution which is part of the root of your question is what i teach in the book what i call the self-employed ecosystem And that's how I've broken it down. I've looked, I've broken it down to what I see are three big elements, what I refer to as the self-employed ecosystem, that like an ecosystem in nature, all three elements have to be thriving in order to not only survive, but thrive as a self-employed business owner. So I, I think there is, the main premise of the book, I would say, is that we can't control the circumstances that are uncontrollable. What we can control is the environment we set up for the results we want that we can take control of. And that gives us, I think a 90% chance of, of getting what we want.
5: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan, crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello fresh.
0: Yeah,
2: Well, I, I want to go back to this idea of, of you know, personal uh, and business, because you say that no matter how hard we try to compartmentalize things, it's all integrated when you're self-employed. What goes on at home affects work and what goes on at work affects home. We're challenged every day. And yes, we take it personally. I, I think the reason that that had struck me so much is because I've noticed that as a public figure there's had to be some separation between who i am, you know, around my closest friends versus who i am in the public eye. You know, i learned this from being on reality tv. Um i learned this from going off the deep end after a breakup where one of my mentors said you're a fucking train wreck, like you can't behave this way on social media. And so for me that was sort of a delicate balancing act because i can tell you for you know damn sure that i'm not going to go into an investor meeting and cry about a breakup with some girl because that's just inappropriate for that context, even though it is a big part of my personal life that's affecting me and it definitely affect is, affects your ability to run a business. And at the same time, there's sort of a line that you can't cross, at least I feel like. And, and I'm wondering, you know, what your take is on that, given what you've just written here about the the connection between the fact that
1: it is personal. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. When you are a public figure, I think that gets more complicated, you know, and I I, I, probably have an increased level of, of empathy for celebrities and people that I see in that situation. Um, I love Brene Brown's comment on that. She, something to the effect that if you're not in the arena, getting your ass kicked, then your opinion doesn't matter to me. And that has helped me a lot to, to, uh, to, to stay authentic despite occasional criticism or misjudgment. Um, that's, that's a tough balance. I mean, I think we have to, the challenge is staying true to yourself, but it, it not being out there in the world for everybody to project their opinion on. Um, for me, the way I handle that is my rule is that I only teach, I only talk about or teach if it results in a teaching lesson, I only talk about something I've learned usually from my personal life or a personal life experience, if if it has application and benefit for others to understand, I only share it in hindsight, never in the moment. Because in the moment, you're too wrapped up in emotions and it's almost inevitably going to come across as self-centered or self-processing. It's too soon. But in hindsight, you can share a lesson learned from life to the benefit of other people. Um, It's it's not an easy task, you know, and I, I, like I said, I probably am more forgiving than most because, you know, hell, there are people that are financial gurus who go through difficult financial times and that doesn't discredit them and how they can serve other people while in that moment they're unwinding from whatever circumstances they're going through. Um, So... Yeah, I think once you've put yourself in the in a public spotlight like you have, I mean, I think it complicates it holding on to what really makes you authentic. But again, that kind of goes back to what I'm saying. I mean, that there, the connection is that much deeper that you're left with more to manage about that connection. Well,
2: I mean, I I always jokingly say I say things to my roommates on a daily basis that are a public relations crisis in a making that I would never say on air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, Danielle Laporte echoed exactly what you you know you said about this. She said she never writes about a difficult experience until she's done processing it. Right. And we had this guy Stephen Goldstein here who had worked with a number of politicians. He booked guests for Oprah, and you know he said something along the lines of no public figure is a hundred percent authentic because it's just not feasible to do that and be in the public
1: eye. Yeah, yeah, I would guess I would. I mean, boy, there's so many layers to authenticity, though, right? I mean, I think. I think there are some people that I think there are some people that it might be more authentic when they're in the spotlight than they are behind the scenes. I mean, there's a way in which um I mean I love and I'm so passionate about what I do. I think in some ways I almost show up more authentically through my work. Uh because when I'm on, I'm on, and when I'm on, I I I flow more freely. I mean, what to be honest with you, Shereen, what you're likely to see of me outside of conversations like this, outside of the work I'm doing. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. Last night was a Zoom launch party for my my book launch, uh, the, and my partner. I don't think he got two words in yesterday, and I, I suddenly realized it. I mean, he, he and I were sitting side by side, and um, you know, I was in my moment. I was with my people. I was had a pumped up day, and I'm on fire, and I I feel my most authentic self, and that's how people see me, and I think they're really seeing the real Jeffrey Shaw. But I'll tell you what, when he and I go out to dinner, he's the one getting all the attention. He's interacting; I'm just sitting there quietly like a fly on the wall. And because that's that's my space when I'm not on, if you will. And it begs the question: which is more the more authentic? I actually think there's I think I'm more authentic when I'm on, but. You know, so I I, th- you ca- I don't think we can assume we're more authentic in our personal lives because in my personal life, outside of my work, uh, I'm a pretty quiet mouse. I'm not somebody who draws attention at all. And yet I do in my work. Wow. Yeah. No,
2: it's, it's a, a really interesting contrast. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, I mean, as you've learned by now, I tend to ask questions that don't have answers. <laughs> yeah. And I love that because <laughs> it gets me exploring it at, at the same time. <laughs> Well, let's get into this whole idea of the uh, self-employed ecosystem. You say by having a system, the outcome you seek, you're far more likely to see it come true and recognize the achievements along the way. By doing the personal development work to unblock what's in your way, you open up opportunities that will prepare you for success. Having effective strategies and action steps for your businesses that really work will make your success inevitable by having the habits that support you every day you stay on track, you're far more likely to see the results of your efforts. And I wanna start with the personal development component of this because um, you may have been reading some of what I've been writing on Facebook, like I'm writing a new book called Not Another Damn Self-Help Book, in which I'm actually questioning a lot of what comes out of personal development because I think that for a lot of people, they get stuck in the personal development component of this and they don't do the strategies and action steps and they don't think about the habits and personal development is just a form of mental masturbation because it doesn't lead to anything. And I think people get stuck in this vicious cycle. And so let's start there because Mm -hmm. clearly I don't think that personal development is useless. I've built a career out of it. I've written books that would be categorized as self-help books. And at the same time, I see so many people who... Read all these books, go to all these seminars, and nothing
1: changes. yeah, a hundred percent and the way the book ends, I think also addresses that question because I was given an exercise by um a, a writing friend of mine to write what i what I feared would be the worst review of the book, and what I feared would be the worst review of the book is that people would accuse me of just being all, you know, sitting around the bonfire singing Kumbaya, that there was going to be this, you know, that what you're saying is because I, I believe so strongly that that attitude doesn't help people, you know, just this whole, you know, sit around and, and you know, I'm in Miami. I mean, there's more than enough of that down here. I mean, I have gone to entrepreneurial groups and it's just so out there. I'm like, but you all, aren't, <laughs> you all aren't doing anything. You know, do something with that. I mean, I obviously believe in personal growth, but do something with it. And even right down to the daily habits, I'm very clear to say, look, you know, I'm not talking about things that are going to take up hours of time every day. I'm talking about 15 minutes. Like, And here, here's exactly what you can do in those 15 minutes because I've seen tangible results. You know, one of those practices is what I talk about. and I know I'm skipping over your question a little bit, but just to reinforce your point, one of those practices I talk about is a what's going right journal. And I'm very clear to explain that gratitude journal didn't work for me. And maybe it doesn't work for other people because it's so freaking broad and it's, it's very self and gratitude is a great emotion. The problem is I don't see any value in journaling about gratitude because if I wake up in the morning and the sun is shining and I'm breathing and my dog is with me, I'm pretty grateful but what do i do with that because i want tangible results so i turned it into what i call a what's going right journal where i journal for 5 to 7 minutes of what's going right in my life which it, during the most challenging times is the hardest thing to do but the most necessary Be- why because there's scientific proof that what you focus on you get more of so how do i rewire my my primitive survival brain that's always looking for threats that's always looking for the negatives which is always looking for the one criticism amongst nine compliments how do i retrain that brain to see more of what's going right so i started a journal called what's going i started at the one of a, a very low point in my life because i knew i needed something that produced results and i've stuck with it for years so i agree with you like i think self help without action is just nice to i mean i i I tell you, and if you've not had him as a guest, a guy named Brant Wenswar, I think you guys, you guys love each other. Um, Brant wrote a book called Black Sheep and Black Sheep is about what he calls your black sheep values, right? Which are your unchangeable values. And what makes them a black sheep values is like the sheep of a, like the black sheep of a, uh, like the black wool of a sheep. It can't be dyed. It can't be changed. So these are your values that can't be changed. So, but before he wrote the book, and quite honestly, the idea for the book came from this conversation I had with him, his speaking career took off. And I reached out to him, I said, Brant, what the hell have you done? Give me the strategies. Like, I want to know, you know, I'm thinking he's gonna give me action steps. And he said, I got in touch with my core values. I'm like, how did that help? He said, Well, the more I understood my core values and shared them, people that believed what I believed were showing up and hiring me and next, you know, and his speaking career took off, like in volume and in his rate. And I said to him, specific, that sounds great, but I don't have time for nice-to-haves. Does this have tangible benefits? And he said, yes. I said, then I'm in. I will hire you to help me with this process. Okay, So that's just who I am. Like, I absolutely, 100% believe in personal development. And I believe in how awarenesses can lead to action, which can lead to results. Otherwise, it's just sitting on the bonfire. Yeah. No, I, I love this idea of black sheep
2: values because it, it just anytime I hear something along those lines, I remember this quote that Justine Musk, uh, you know, that I quote frequently. She said, if you have a bold and compelling point of view, it's going to piss people off. And I realized, you know, I think finally when we made the shift from, you know, broadcast if I'm done it was largely because I had finally gotten in touch with what actually mattered to me, um, which was I hated everything that looked like it was mimicking other people. And amazingly enough, everything took off from there.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, and I credit Brant with doing my doing the work with him to get in touch with my uh, core values. I credit him with creating my first ever about page. Uh, but I never had an about page because I'm like, oh, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> you know, I never knew what to say on an about page. And but once I got in touch with my values, I'm like, I'm all in. I know exactly what to say. And my about page is like, here's what I value. Here are the organizations I support. And here's what I prioritize. Like, literally, that's what my about page looks like. And, you know, as about pages often are, it's like the most visited page on the website. And people that get that, uh, it has drawn a lot of wonderful people into my life and a lot of great, because Brant was right. It's like, I put myself out there in all my truth. If you are either, if you either agree with it, or if you're intrigued by it, you're likely to reach out. If you are vehemently opposed to what I'm saying and sharing, then you're not my people. And mm-hmm. that's okay.
2: Yeah. Well, that makes a perfect segue to talking about uh, two concepts that really resonated with me, which you called embrace hug marketing and creating an emotional journey. And you say, you know, when you see it as your job to emotionally move people, you shift responsibility of being successful from the customer yourself, which gives you more control over your business. And it, it you know, to now that I'm talking to you about it, I realize everything that I attempt to do on the podcast centers around one idea, which is emotional resonance. You know, is this going to have emotional resonance with somebody? And so the thing is that that's also somewhat vague, right? It's like, how the hell do you create emotional resonance? And you say the journey on which you take your visitors, whether it's prospective customers on your site, readers of your blog or listeners of your podcast is a blend of consumer behavior, psychology and the subtleties of your audience. So
1: let's talk about how to take people on that journey. Yeah, Uh, and And a lot of that. It comes from my, my previous book, Lingo, too, which is you know an emotional branding strategy, right? It's it's how to, and it's also the story of how I built my my photography career because I ended up serving, you know, as you may recall, I ended up serving a very affluent clientele that is not where I came from, and in order for me to do that, I had to emotionally understand their resonance, right? Because I realized the power in marketing, the power in in sales, if you will, the power in everything in business is the lies in the power to emotionally move people. And one of the greatest freedoms I gained in business is that when I made the the internal shift many, many years ago about, first of all, I was never uncomfortable with sales, but the biggest internal shift was when I I no longer saw it as sales as convincing people of anything, but rather emotionally moving them. And I was also being a photographer at the time, I realized what an amazing advantage I'm at because there's two steps here. I need to emotionally move people through, through photographs of their loved ones. Then I can, then I can move them to a decision. Right. And the decision I'm looking to move them to is a substantial investment in photographs. But that changed the whole, my whole mindset about what we typically refer to as sales and looked at it more of, my responsibility and all of our responsibilities to emotionally connect and move with people before you try to move them into anything that you have to offer. And that's what I, that's what I mean by the shifting of the responsibility. I really feel like it shifted the weight of, and that was many years ago for me. And I just continue to do this. So I look at a website and that's, that's the strategy I teach on this emotional journey, which is an expansion of what I taught in lingo. Cause in lingo, You know, I I had the brand message strategy down. What I didn't see coming is that once the book was out, what I would get hired most to do and what my primary income to date is I rebrand through messaging people's web homepages, not even the whole website. I mean, there's a connectedness, but I really just focus on the homepage because the homepage is everything. If you don't get people, if you don't emotionally move move people within seconds on a homepage, your interior pages are irrelevant. They're not going there. So there's a, a huge weight of responsibility on emotionally moving people as soon as they land on a website. So what I started, do people started calling upon me to say, "Hey, could you take your your concepts and lessons and lingo and help me recraft my brand messaging?" And like I said, "Right." As three years later, it is my primary source of income, and uh, and made for a very healthy business during the pandemic because a lot of people were taking the time to do that and realizing that as i kept saying during such a crisis every business needs to reconsider their brand messaging right because the world changed yeah
2: well i I, in in the interest of being completely selfish i'm gonna have you actually go through this like if you can do it as a mini version with me uh, on my website just so we have a concrete example okay so let me pull up your website Keep in mind, we're also A-B testing a lot of things, so. All
0: right. Good thing I'm in front of a browser. All right. <clears> okay, <throat> right, so... And you want, you want me to offer you feedback on the
1: website.
2: Yeah. Let's just start there. If I want to create an emotional response and somebody who lands on this page, which, you know, mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, cause for, uh, you know, with unmistakable visuals are a huge part of what we do, but there's more to it than that. I know words are also a big part of what I do.
1: Yeah. So first thing, and I'm going to start pretty basic Is and again, I'm at unmistakablecreative.com. I'm missing this, the site you want me to look at it. It's not functioning aligned with today's. Uh, users in that it is a landing page that you, you, you have to click through to something. And the reason that's critical is that 70, at least 70%. And you know what, Sharni, for your audience, I'd say 90% of visitors to your website are on mobile devices and people on mobile devices innately don't like to go to interior pages because, and, and every performance metric has shown that because, uh, it takes too long to load on a mobile device. And there's no true menu, right? So you just have the hamburger menu. There's three lines. So step number one is you've actually created a barrier because it's a landing page to which there's no place to go until you click on something else. So when I what I teach in the book, what I refer to as the emotional journey is actually a scrolling homepage that takes people on a journey that the goal, the real goal is, is that the journey you're taking, the emotional journey you're taking your website visitor on is so complete, that they go from being compelled to contacting you and have never left the homepage. Now, that's not to say there shouldn't be interior pages, but here's the reality. If you look at consumer behavior today, you have to think about the 10-second visitor and the 10-minute visitor. They're both out there, but by far, just due to lifestyle today, most people that we're reaching are 10-second visitors at best. To me, it's that those are your, and those are often your ideal. I think there's another, there's another line of filter here, if you will, that they are your ideal clients. People that have, this is going to, I think, turn most people's thinking upside down. But as a business, people, your customers that have less time are likely your best customers. Okay. Which, cause that means they're going to be quicker to make decisions. They're going to be quicker to move on and they're far less likely to drive you crazy right? The, sometimes, often, our worst customers are those that have too much time in their hands. <laughs> yeah, I can, right? I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually like to embed in the experience ways in which we're attracting that ideal customer, that, which is likely to be the 10-second visitor, that they can be sold on what you have to offer and never leave the homepage. Because mm. the messaging at the top is compelling enough, and if you look at, in the book, if you look at the emotional journey, it, it lays out in steps like this. Like the yeah. opening, what I refer to as the open, opening scene, that has to be super compelling. It has to have an, what I call a standout statement. It's very different than a slogan or tagline. Your standout statement lets the world know what you stand for, who you stand up for, and it's so compelling that it stands out. That's the hook. You get them there. You're usually backed up with imagery, which you're amazing at. Your imagery is amazing. No question there. It needs to be followed up with, especially in today's world, what I refer to as an empowerment section. The moment you try to take someone's power away, they will back up. That's why we don't like to be sold to. Um, You have to give them the power to, you have to let them think that they're coming to the conclusion to choose you. In fact, Forrester uh, Group recently did a study that proved this, that they said that today's consumers have made up their mind 70% to choose you before they've even reached out to you. Okay, they're self vetting, right? And and that's why you want to empower them to make that choice. You, again, it kind of goes back to the core principles in my book that it's creating the environment for the results you want. You're creating the environment for them to choose you, but you're letting them feel empowered to have made that choice. Because the moment you tell somebody you can trust me, mm-hmm. they don't trust you. Yeah. <laughs> right. The moment, uh, and this we see this all the time. How many businesses say? We're the best on our industry. The moment you've told me that you're the best, I don't believe you. The moment you tell me you're a genius and you know who I'm talking about, I know it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that's why you really, that empowerment section is when they really get emotionally hooked. Okay. Then you walk them through this process of, of, on the emotional journey of, kind of talking about, you know, the benefits, and I look at the benefits too, like, what's the benefit of what your field, like, what's the benefit of what you have to offer? Still, you haven't spoken about yourself yet. And it's not until the next section that you then portray the benefits of choosing you. But again, imagine the journey so far, you've emotionally connected with them, and they landed on the website, you've empowered them to choose you, you've helped them imagine what's possible in their lives through through the industry that you're in or what you do. It's not until the next section that you even talk about yourself. Yeah. Wow. And that's what's critical in marketing today because it's about them. It's not about you. And, and I, my websites all end with what I call an authority section, which is a little bit of a challenge to Simon Sinek, who I adore and respect. But the whole concept of start with why doesn't work in the emotional journey of marketing. Because when we start with why, it means we're often talking about ourselves. And it's about the visitor. It's about the other first. But you end with your why. You end with your authority section. And, and then the overriding feeling people, you want people to, to get at the end of that journey on the homepage at the end, you want them to feel like it's no wonder this is what you do. They get your story now. They get your values. They get your understanding of who you are after they've learned what you do. And they're like, well, it's no wonder this is why you do what you do. I can see it's meaningful to you. And that just seals the deal. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we, even when we took our uh, copywriting course, like
2: everything was about shifting the language from I to you. Uh, well, in the interest of time, uh, we've talked extensively about habits on this show with people like James Clear and a bunch of other people. But I, I want to dig deeper into the the business stuff. And I think the the thing that struck me most here was this idea of a business model of multiples. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that and talk about that? Because I, I think that to me, the reason this intrigues me is because creatives are notorious for having a thousand different ideas, moving a mile in one direction and you know a thousand in none. And at the same time, you actually say, if there is to be a niche, it's not the one thing you do, it's the one thing you're known for, your area of expertise. But this area is spacious and has breathing room. Your area of expertise is your core brand message and standout statement. So how do you balance this idea of a business model of multiples with also being focused enough to make progress in one area?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as I think the, th- the theme of our conversation today, it's, it's, you know, I think everything in life is art and a science right? So there's an art and a science to this. And I just know that as a creative person my whole life, that I have suffered under the idea of being told to sit still, focus on one thing, pick a niche. And that is really, I spoke earlier about the permission people feel like I granted them. I granted them permission to be in a business in a way that actually leverages their creative mind. Because I'm sure you felt the same way. Like that's just, that has been a spirit killer in my life, and I see it in other people's lives, that when we're told to, you know, you're too much, sit down, focus on one thing, and then I go into business, and people like pick one thing to do to one audience. And what I've come to realize, and and we're seeing it being a far more popular today, is no, I, the niche is not one thing you you do and for one audience. Your niche is the your area of expertise. Like I, I had a very clear goal, Sherny, and it's working. I wanted my name to be synonymous with all things self employed. Like when I wrote this book. This was a big shift for me because prior to this book, if you asked me who I was for or whom I was for, I would say entrepreneurs. Well, you know what? There's a lot of people in the entrepreneur space, a lot of so-called experts, and it's so broad. I don't even know what that means. But I want my name to be, when people say Jeffrey Shaw, self-employed, I want those things to be synonymous because that's my area of expertise, and it's already catching on. I mean, I'm having people refer Other people, speaking engagements, clients—they're referring to because they're like, "Hey, talk to Jeffrey Shaw. He's the go-to guy for all things self-employed." Okay, so that becomes my area of expertise, for which there are multiple audiences. I mean, think about how many different types of self-employed businesses are. So there are multiple audiences, and there are multiple ways I can communicate that. I can write books, I can be a speaker, I can have a podcast, I can—you know—I can do webinars. There are multiple mediums by which I can help that audience. That's why I refer to it as a business model of multiples. Now, the logical side, I said art and science, the science side or the logical side of that is I don't think anybody can manage more than seven levers is what I refer to them. And I refer to them as levers because being creative, I need a visual and I think a lot of people do. And I look at it as the business model of multiples is like standing before a control panel of seven levers at the most. And you know what, all those levers may not be firing at the same time, but they exist. They're there, like my podcast, I haven't really put a whole lot of effort into monetizing the podcast, so the lever is there. I know it's an avenue, I know it's a a potential income stream, but it's kind of ranked. you know, it's kind of pulled down at the moment. Um, My photography lever, now, you know, 10 years ago, that was 100% up, but I've been pulling that down to do very little photography today. I don't think anything gives us more control than getting to the point that we can look at our multiple streams of income, no more than seven, from what I've observed in people that I don't think anybody can handle more than seven. And again, they may not all be firing at the same time, but you know that they're there. I don't think anything gives us more control than to know that it's in our, it's our choice which levers we pull down, which ones we push up. Now, it's not to say that circumstances are going to come down along and yank down a lever like last year for me for speaking. Practically overnight, that speaking lever got pulled straight down to nothing. The good news is, is that I had built a a decent reputation for brand messaging. So I took that lever and ramped it up and wound up having a terrific year in 2020 while other streams of income were non-existent. But the power comes in knowing that you have the choice and that you have a diversified enough business. And I t- I helped a lot of speakers last year. I spoke at, you know, national speaker association events helping speakers who had, you know, their their one and only source of income was speaking. And now what? Now what? You know. Um so that's why I teach the business model of multiples. It is it to me it's both a way to leverage the most brilliant of minds, those that see more, hear more and feel more, it's a way to leverage that and contain it at the same time. Wow. Wow. Um,
2: I love this because you've packed this with uh, a combination of thought provoking and incredibly practical insight uh, You know, usually when people write books like this, like you said, it tends to be a bit kumbaya, but I, this is the thing that I really liked about this was they were very practical and applicable ideas. So, uh, on that note, um, I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: You know, it's, it's what makes someone unmistakable is that they it's what comes from the inside from the inside out. It's a, it's something that radiates, um, you know, a good friend of mine, her book is about to come out and it's called Swagger and be another great person for you to, to speak with, by the way. Um, and I've really understood that when people have swagger, it comes from the inside, you know, and as a photographer, I can recall photographing people that had a certain swagger and I've come to, for me, and it's not her definition, but my definition of swagger is being comfortable in your skin. And I think when we see people that are comfortable in their skin, they're unforgettable. There's something so beautiful. And one of my, one of branding client I'm working with uh, is, we're doing all her branding around the word gorgeous. Because I think gorgeous is very different than beauty. You know, somebody's gorgeousness comes from inside. I I gave her the scenario. Gorgeousness is when you're in bed with someone you love and you roll over and it's, you're just waking up in the morning and you roll over and the breath is bad and the hair is disheveled and you roll over and say, hello, gorgeous. Why? Because you see their gorgeousness. It's that rate. It's that thing that radiates from the inside and comes out. And that I think is, I think that's unforgettable in people. Mm, Amazing.
2: Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about
1: you, your work, the book, and everything else you're up to? You know, my, my main website is jeffreyshaw.com. Uh, but if it's, it's, if it's in particular the self-employed uh, world, then I would go to the selfemployed life.me uh, because it not only features the book, it really is the world of all things self-employed that I'm creating. I have uh, I've started an advocacy group. Uh, so that I can be an advocate for self-employed business owners at a governmental level. Um, I recently hosted a two-day online summit um, called the Self-Employed Summit. Uh, I'm writing articles. I'm a contributing writer for Entrepreneur Magazine. So all of that is at the selfemployedlife.me because I do look at that one one single page as kind of the world I want to create as a world of resources and support and companionship for self-employed business owners. (sighs)